You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 24, ADHD. Lots of people have heard of attention deficit disorder. It's kind of a popular disease now. People know a lot about it, but do they know the truth about it? Today, we are going to get the scientific facts from our own Kim Hellemans. We're going to talk about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So Kim, why don't you first tell us um, the way a scientist would define ADHD? Sure. Um before I get into that, it might be important for us to sort of start off by actually talking about what is what is the norm, right? So um, I often kind of like to think about if you've ever seen children uh, in an elementary school setting, uh, you might ask yourself, is it normal for a child to be able to pay attention for an hour and a half? Likely not, like not a five-year-old, um, probably not an eight-year-old, maybe at 10 or 11, we can start to get that sustained attention. So it's important to recognize that attention in small kids is very short, right? Like, you know, I think at the age of five or four, when they start kindergarten, they're basically able to pay attention for probably five to 10, 15 minutes at a time. And so there is this natural age-related improvement in uh, attention uh, and memory. Um, in ADHD, what you see is children that don't seem to follow that norm. They are less able to sustain their attention for whatever would be considered normal at that developmental age. Uh, so in that respect, ADHD is one of the developmental disorders, along with autism spectrum disorders and a few others, according to um, psychiatry. And so the essential, feature, essential feature of ADHD is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity and impulsivity. So let me just break that down. To be inattentive is what it sounds like. It's not being able to uh, listen to a teacher giving instructions for five minutes. It's not being able to sit and focus and read a paper if you're an adult. Uh, it's not ha being able to fill in a form that requires you to pay attention to all different kinds of metrics within that form. So that's the inattentive piece. Hyperactivity is can be manifest as people kind of feeling uh, jittery, um, not being able to stop talking. So you see this in kids sometimes. They just don't know when to, well, they're not able to, to really be quiet. Kind of uh, this, this feeling of just constantly being in motion. And the impulsivity domain relates to that to some extent because impulsivity is that inability to um, act without regard for the consequences of one's actions uh, or thinking in the moment. Um, you know, uh, for a child that might be manifest as really misbehavior, right? So a kid that might uh, fling a pencil at another child, um, not realizing that that might hurt the child, for example. Um, so in some, ADHD is that persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity and impulsivity. So we ta we've talked before um, about addiction and compulsive compulsiveness. It, and mm -hmm. both um, uh, compulsion and impulsivity are related to sort of a losing control. Is there a is that, are those two different technical terms? Yes, impulsivity and, and compulsivity are related, but quite different. And they are different. They are different when they when you think about the 
circuits in the brain that are implicated in compulsivity and impulsivity. So addiction is actually a disorder that is marked by impulsive behavior at first. So thinking, uh, acting without thinking, acting out without regard for the consequences of one's, one's actions. Uh, and then it progresses into more compulsive behavior in that people really feel like this almost urge to continue to engage in the substance use uh, without regard for um, how it might impact their, their, their health, for example. So we say addiction progresses from impulsive to compulsivity. Compulsivity is observed in, uh, obviously, obsessive compulsive disorder, and ADHD is primarily marked by impulsivity. So they are quite separate constructs with different mental um, circuits that are implicated. So when I was young, people talked a lot about ADD, attention deficit disorder, um, and it seems like that might have changed. How is this disorder diagnosed now? So in 2013, uh, the newest edition of what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5, was published. So it's the, it's the fifth edition. Uh, and this is the diagnostic Bible uh, for clinicians, healthcare practitioners, to use this as sort of a way to literally diagnose these disorders. It's not the only one. So we, we have the WHO has um, some ways in which we can, and diagnostic criteria, uh, and but typically we talk about the DSM, and up until the DSM five, uh, you could be diagnosed with either ADD or ADHD. So you could receive a standalone diagnosis of attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now ADD has been folded into ADHD, and instead now you're diagnosed as either primarily inattentive, primarily hyperactive, or a combination of both. So in the the diagnostic criteria are pretty straightforward. Um, so you must meet at least six criteria from a checklist of about nine for the inattentive component, and similarly, six criteria from a checklist of about nine for the hyperactivity impulsivity component. So you could you could have nine out of nine for the inattentive, and then that would be predominantly inattentive. Or you could have six out of one category, six out of the other, and then you're a combination, for example. And importantly, you need to be um, to receive a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, it has to be observed in at least two contexts. So what that means is that, like children, could be very inattentive in school, but when they get into their home environment or in other uh, family situations, they're not showing that behavior. And that could relate then to something quite different. It could actually be misdiagnosed anxiety. Uh, So ADHD, you need to show this pattern of inattentive and and or hyperactivity in multiple contexts, so two or more. And that's why if you have a child that's suspected to have ADHD, typically it's a teacher that first comes and says to a parent, you know, I think that your child might um, be uh, on the spectrum of ADHD, and then they get a form to fill out, the parent and the um, the school teacher, and then it goes to an appropriate clinician for diagnosis. So you mentioned it was a developmental disorder, um, but I think we know that adults can have it too. Does it get diagnosed in adulthood ever? It does, yeah. So, um, and you know, it's, it's interesting because ADHD is becoming increasingly, like most mental health disorders, a lot of people are now becoming more aware and more kind of tapped into these symptoms. And so you do see this sort of wave of folks kind of like my age, people in their 30s and 40s that are like, wait a sec, this might look like me or this might explain 
some of my um, behavior. And certainly there is the possibility to be diagnosed in adulthood. That said, uh, there's about 2.5% of the population that have um, an, an adult diagnosis of ADHD, which suggests to us that, um, in fact, a lot of symptoms do remit across the lifespan. And that has to do with the development of the frontal lobe, which we'll talk about later. What does remit mean? Remit means that the symptoms become less uh, uh, functionally, ha having a functional impairment. So as, as we develop across the lifespan and why it is that our memory and attention tends to increase as we get older is because the frontal lobe continues to develop well into, um, I would say, like early adulthood until mid-20s. So people who may have, you know, symptoms of ADHD primarily um, those hyperactive impulsivity symptoms do seem to rem remit or get better as adults get older. Um, that said, there's about 50% of the population that seem to still have these symptoms. So 50% of that 2.5%. Um, so of course, then that might merit uh, treatment. Um, and we'll talk about the treatment, I'm sure, later. Yeah. So the, they're diagnosed in adulthood sometimes, but is it developed in adulthood or is it usually missed no. in childhood? Great question. So uh, in order to receive the adult diagnosis, there needs to be enough evidence to demonstrate that the symptoms were present before the age of 12. Oh, okay. And that's very clearly written in the DSM-5 that, you know, sometimes uh, people go through retrospective um, analysis looking at report cards, for mm. example. And there's, you know, back in the day when teachers actually wrote out very uh, individualistic comments about an individual, now it's all uh, pre-programmed computer, like, function F11 for <laughs> your kid. Drop down but, menu. You know, yeah, drop down menu. Uh, but Throws back in my, in my day, they had actual like written comments. And yeah. you can certainly probe that and you can see hints of somebody having demonstrated inattentiveness or hyperactivity before the age of 12. Okay. So it does affect your ability to perform well at school. Is it an intellectual disorder? No, and that's one of the, I think, the myths around ADHD is that um, people, individuals with ADHD have lower IQ, and that's, in fact, false. Uh, the IQ range across individuals diagnosed with ADHD is exactly what would be matched onto the general population. So there are some people who have very high IQs and others that have lower IQs. Um, so it's, it is not an intellectual disorder. That said... Untreated ADHD may well um, manifest itself as um, being, you know, lower school attendance, uh, report cards being lower. Um, there's also some delays in language and motor control as well as social development. And these things are common in children with ADHD that have not been diagnosed or treated. And typically what you'll see is a catch-up once somebody is treated is that they will then um, uh, develop normally as, as their normal peers. Um, and that's probably a lot of that is attributable to low attention, right? So if you're not able to, to focus and pay attention in school, you probably aren't going to be learning uh, adequately and you're not going to be able to be demonstrating your knowledge as one does in test situations, for example. Mm -hmm. So when what would you be on the lookout for for symptoms of ADHD? 
Uh, so some of them are um, certainly with the inattentive domain. Um, your you know kids that are having difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. They're not not seeming to listen when they're spoken to directly. Uh, they the difficulty organizing. Right. So these kids are often and adults as well very disorganized. Um, their exterior and their in, their internal life and their external life are very disorganized. So um, you know they they're they're more they're, their rooms are more messy. For example, they have poor time management. They're <coughs> as adults. This means like they're failing to meet deadlines, right? Which in a work setting, that could have pretty drastic consequences. Um, they're losing things. That's a one uh, one of the diagnostic markers as well is uh, losing your wallet, losing your keys consistently. Of course, this is not pathognomonic to ADHD. And pathognomonic is a fancy word to say it's not the defining feature of this disorder, <laughs> meaning if you are somebody that fails to, is always losing their wallet, their keys, doesn't mean you have ADHD, so don't worry. Um, but this is, you know, it's, 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 it is something that is looked out for in ADHD. Um, somebody who's distracted, uh, forgetful, so they might be doing running errands and they forget what they're doing. Um, for older adults, this is like returning, forgetting to return phone calls, paying bills on time, and keeping appointments. So that's, you know, things that are more on the inattentive domain. When we talk about hyperactivity and impulsivity, this is like fidgeting, right? Tapping hands, tapping feet, squirming in the seat, you know, you have that image of the kid that just can't sit still. And certainly in, in and um, my, uh, I know a, a few kids that are uh, ADHD in our school board, and um, you know sometimes this means that they they don't have to sit down, right? So the teachers can accommodate that because if the kid literally can't sit in their seat, then not why not just anything. stand up, right? Um, running, climbing situations where it might be inappropriate. Uh, so you know, climbing gym equipment, being told no, 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 repeatedly, and they can't stop. Um, they're often seeming like on the go, acting as if like you'll hear driven by a motor, right? Hmm. Talking excessively, blurting out answer before the question's been completed. So that's that impulsivity piece. You can't wait for your turn. Um, uh, in adults, hard time waiting in line, right? Uh, it interrupting, intruding on others, butting into conversation. So these are all the, the things to sort of be that are uh, the features of ADHD. It sounds like people on ADHD would have trouble with uh, the marshmallow test. Is that true? Right. Yeah. So there's some interesting um, tasks that are done in in psychology where you can take kids. Uh, with ADHD or other um, disorders, and you can see what their behavior looks like. And the Stanford Marshmallow Study is an interesting one. Um, so for our listeners that aren't aware of what the Stanford Marshmallow Task is, it's a very famous experiment that was done in the 50s at Stanford University, where very briefly, uh, they got a population of kids around four or five or six, and uh, they put them in a, in a in a room where there was no stimuli, so nothing, there were no toys, no books. Um, they basically were just sitting there and they gave them a marshmallow. And they were told, um, if you don't eat the marshmallow before I come back, and they weren't told when they would come back, so there was this uncertain time frame. Uh, so they were told, if you don't eat the marshmallow before I come back, uh, I'll give you a second one. And so the experimenter would leave the room 
the kid would be there uh, and not being aware of the fact that they were also being looked at through a, a one-way mirror. Mm-hmm. So the experimenters and their confederates could look at this, the, the children. And what they found was that there is this, this variation in uh, kids' abilities to wait for that second marshmallow, right? So this is a measure of delay to gratification, which is uh, a feature of impulsive <clears throat> choice, right? So uh, for some of us, that can be manifest as we can't wait to buy that you know, super expensive gadget, right? Mm-hmm. The iPhone 11, um, even though we don't have the money in our bank account to pay for it, we need to have it. So we put it on our credit card. So that's delay to gratification. And sure enough, there are some kids that are really good at it, right? So they'll wait like an eternity to get that second marshmallow. And there's some kids that would just Yomp! Eat it, put right. it in their mouth. And I highly recommend if you uh, uh, if you haven't seen some of these videos, they're super cute. They've redone uh, some of this experiment in the Common Era. And you could, if you just Google uh, Stanford Marshmallow Task on YouTube, you'll find some really neat videos. Back to the ADHD kids. I'm sure some of you are probably guessing that these children really struggled with that, right? So if you take kids with ADHD... Um, uh, and and test them with the Stanford Marshmallow Test, and they often, more often than not, cannot wait for that second marshmallow. So they show this low um, propensity to delay gratification. Yeah. Are they... Um, do they have the similar kinds of conditioning, like sensitivity to reward and punishment? Right. And that's another interesting uh, endophenotype, uh, which is a fancy way of, of saying that there are manifestations of the disorder that come out in, in unique ways. So one of the endophenotypes of ADHD is that they do seem to be reward insensitive. So what that means is imagine a com- as a parent, right? You're, you're trying to um, guide your children's behavior. And what do we tend to do if a children is doing something really well, like brushing their teeth um, and putting on their pajamas and getting ready for bed in a certain amount of time, we say, if you do it um, before I come upstairs, uh, I will reward you with an extra story, right? So we often do this as parents or we punish, right? (laughs) But it's been shown, I think you would also know this, Jim, in the psychological literature that reward is better at guiding behavior and shaping behavior than punishment. But again, back to the ADHD kids, they seem to be quite insensitive to that. It doesn't matter these rewards that you might um, uh, offer them. They cannot seem, that doesn't seem to shape their behavior. Uh, and this also becomes manifest, interestingly, as their, their propensity to take more risks as well. So there's another psychological test um, that's used uh, to look at Im- impulsivity and risk, which is called the Iowa gambling task. And in the Iowa gambling task, um, you present people with four decks of cards, unbeknownst to them. Two of the decks are quote unquote good decks, and two of the, the decks are bad decks, meaning the good decks, they, um, if you pick from them, you actually, uh, uh, over time, you lose less money versus the bad decks. You, you, they give a high payoff, but they also, you, you eventually lose more money. So, the, so you're drawing cards and certain cards give you money and certain cards take away money and you get to pick which deck you draw from. Is that the task? Exactly. Okay. And and the goal is to uh, make as much money as possible, okay. right? So if you pick from one um, ta- like deck A 
and you lose two bucks, oh no, maybe I'll go to deck B, oh, you get a dollar and so on, right? So over time, people don't realize this, but um, healthy controls will actually select less and less from the the bad decks and more and more from the good decks. Uh, People with uh, damage to the frontal lobe can't do this task. Kids with ADHD tend to, again, take more risk, make more risky choices, so they pick more from those bad decks. So all of this seems to suggest, again, that individuals with ADHD are insensitive to reward and take more risks. So are they also insensitive to punishment? Um, not, no, not that I know of. That's interesting because there's a theory, a theory of psychopathy that psychopaths are insensitive to punishment but not reward. So they're oh, treating psychopaths only with reward. And never punt like when they're institutionalized, for example, you never punish them for what they do because it doesn't do any good. But you like offer psychopathic kids stickers and they get all excited and they'll wow. start behaving. So it's interesting <clears throat> if there's like this uh, difference that you can, you know, because we think of we teach conditioning like it's, you know, uh, and sometimes it's even hard to define whether something is a reward or a punishment or a, you know, depending on how you look at it. But it's interesting that there are disorders where you can lose one. Or you can be insensitive to one and perhaps not another, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Um, how, so how common is ADHD? It seems to be uh, something everybody knows about. Is it really common? Um, more Yes and no. So it, it, first of all, it really does depend where you live. So there's some really fascinating um, systematic reviews that have looked at the prevalence statistics across different parts of the world. And overall worldwide prevalence is around 7%. Uh, so it's seven kids or seven individuals in every 100 that wow. have a diagnosis, which is a little bit higher than most of the other mental health disorders. So, you know, we're looking at things like Anorexia is about 0.1% of the population. Substance use disorders, three to four percent. Depression and anxiety are relatively common, but um, it, you know it, it kind of sits in the middle there. Schizophrenia, one in 100. Um, that said, North America, we do have relatively higher prevalence statistics relative to other parts of the world. So, for example, about seven percent in North America. In the Middle East, it's more like four to five percent. Same thing in Europe. And th- and these and, aren't differences in ability to diagnose or? That may well explain some of it. So it really does depend on what what version of the DSM, for example, people might be using to for their diagnostic criteria. It also de- de- depends on if they're using WHO criteria or DSM. Um, so that does play a role. But there's also something that we need to be mindful of, which is the influence of culture. In North America, we very much value uh, sitting still, listening, scholarly work, right? So mm-hmm. you think about the typical classroom setting in North America. I mean, I know this is changing somewhat, but certainly most of us can conjure up in our mind's eye, you know, the rows of children in their seats sink, sitting quietly and calmly. This is what we value in our society. Com- contrast that to, you know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, agrarian societies where uh, we don't have this kind of structure and indeed uh, we're you know, running around, working the fields, being more active physically is what is more valued in those kinds of societies. So it's important to kind of apply that cultural lens that what we might consider pathological or psychopathological, um, pathological, might not be pathological in other societies. So I think that's really meaningful, particularly with ADHD. Yeah, because it, it's, we, we don't want to say something's a mental disorder just because it doesn't fit with our culture. I mean, that's not what we want the mental disorder to be, but there's a danger of that happening, right? 
Of course, like exactly. It, it, parents have trouble controlling their children because they want children to act in a way that's very unnatural for children to act. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. mean they're sick, right? And and you raise a good point because there are a number of critics of the diagnosis of ADHD and and it being a disorder um, from a number of, a few standpoints. There is what seems to be some uh, abuse of um, medicines to treat ADHD where a parent might say, you know, my child is misbehaving. It might be something completely different. Um, and and people might be using these drugs inappropriately to try to, quote unquote, calm their children down. And then there's also the the standpoint that, as you were kind of alluding to, that maybe is this just normal childhood rambunctiousness that we as a society are creating um, it to be pathological. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reminded but, of I'm reminded of how uh, homosexuality was considered a disorder for a long time, and one of the justifications was, "Well, they're depressed." It's like, "Well, no kidding." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, of course, because they're they're discriminated you know, and, yeah, and terribly oppressed. Discriminated against. But I think it is important, you know, on the on that topic of is it a real disorder to recognize that every behavior exists in a normal distribution, right? So be it um, extroversion, height, and that's not even a behavior, but um, all psychological constructs exist on a normal distribution, meaning there are some of us that are highly extroverted and some of us that are highly introverted. There are some of us, or less extroverted, I guess, is the appropriate domain. There are some <laughs> of us that are highly paranoid. There's some of us are very trusting. And most of us are in the middle. And most of us are in the middle. And attention and hyperactivity also exist on that continuum. So there are absolutely children and adults that are at the tail end of that distribution that may need appropriate support, be that in the form of treatment with medicine, in order to um, not feel that functional impairment. I think that's really meaningful for our listeners to understand is that there are some people, children and adults, that are not doing well as a result of their inability to pay attention and their inability to um, control their behavior. So what about the other end of the distribution, the other tail, the people mm -hmm. who are incredibly attentive? Is that is Can that get so bad that it's a disorder, do you know? Well, I would, I would, so I would argue that maybe that we're, we're overlapping into paying so much attention that this becomes almost like pieces of schizophrenia and paranoia, right? Where everything becomes meaningful. You're paying attention to everything and not being able to not attend to irre irrelevant stimuli, mm -hmm. right? So perhaps I, I'm not sure I'm speaking from from the hip, I believe yeah, the expression right. is. Yeah, but, it's just yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, when you've got... Um, mm you know, normal distributions, some, in, in some cases, both sides, both extremes can lead to something that we don't, uh, exactly. you know, we don't like. Yeah. You know, th that seems to speak a bit to this sort of um, popular idea that ADHD is overdiagnosed. I get a little irritated when, like, people who know, who have, like, no qualifications just blithely say that doctors are overdiagnosing, but, you mm -hmm. know, it, are they? So, I, I mean, Potentially, there are some um, that are more quick, but re recall that there is a, a rigorous process in that diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? So to, a proper psychoeducational assessment with a, a, a clinician that has the, uh, the credentials to do that diagnosis, um, they are doing the tests that do 
look into these kinds of of behaviors. and then, of course, there's the parental and teacher. you have to validate that. so i would say you know i think the diagnoses, for the most part, are real ah whether one should medicate a child that is becoming more of a concern that speaks to, like, ok, how are we how are we giving these children stimulants when they're still in the process of development? and And certainly, we can talk later about how mm-hmm. this is treated. But that's, you know, I think we're 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 more aware of the disorder now. And where that child falls on the spectrum, there's no line in the sand, right? So, you know, maybe a child is meeting three or, five out of the nine criteria, and they're borderline, right? Um, maybe they've got nine out of nine, um, and that's uh, and it's having a real uh, functional impairment. And I think that's really what we need to be focusing yeah. on is that functional impairment because really, kids that are on the very high end of ADHD, they don't have friends, right? they're They're being ostracized by their peers often because they can't listen. They can't sit still. they're they, you know, little Johnny winging, um, throwing spitballs repeatedly into uh, little Jenny's hair, and she's getting irritated, and the teacher's getting mm-hmm. irritated, and everybody's irritated. And I know uh, a, fr- a friend of mine whose son was diagnosed and then treated said it was incredible because the moment that the medicine started taking effect, she she saw that her the fr- the friends in the class were now seeing her son as a friend. And not as an enemy, not as somebody that they need to continue to continually sort of fend off because he could not understand yeah. no means no. Yeah, and um, it it's uh, and even if a person only has like two of them, those could be very severe. You know, so yeah. you know the, these you know the the DSM struggles to it has to balance between simplicity of diagnosis that everyone can understand it, um, balanced with you know, accuracy and, and what's the most help for people, right? Exactly. Uh, you, you mentioned um, little boys spitting spitballs. Um, are boys more apt to get ADHD? They're more apt to receive a diagnosis, yes. So the ratio is about three to one. So every, for every three boys that are diagnosed with ADHD, one girl is diagnosed. So this speaks to very much, I would argue, our gender differences in behavior. Like among a group of boys, boys on average tend to be more hyperactive, rambunctious, high activity than girls, right? And again, you know, this has nuances of like, are we pathologizing our boys, right? Are we are we saying that this behavior we're we're calling it not normal when realistically, on average, boys are are more hyperactive to, uh, to like begin are they with. is like are they actually more hyperactive on average or is it that they have a wider variance do you know what i mean like i, f- I feel like a lot of in a lot of things men have more variance than women and Potentially. so they end up having more on the the bad end sure that uh, could I mean, be so yeah. not sure yeah okay yeah i'm not sure but either way um, boys are more diagnosed uh, diagnosed yeah. more often than girls yes do we know what causes ADHD? Um, no. <laughs> Next question. We, yeah. <laughs> we know, so we know the underlying systems that are probably affected by ADHD. So first of all, there are, it is highly heritable. So uh, the incidence of ADHD is 
is elevated in first-degree relatives of, of people with ADHD. So what that means is that if, if I have a diagnosis of ADHD, it's more likely than not one of my parents had ADHD or a sibling, right? So those are the first-degree relatives. So that suggests to us that there is some genetic loading into the disorder. And that said, like many mental health disorders, there is no one gene that seems to code for ADHD. Mm-hmm. It's probably a, a, a variety of genes. Some candidate genes seem to be related to the dopamine system, which makes sense given that uh, the drugs that are used to treat ADHD do have their primary target on the dopamine sick on the dopamine system. Does it increase or decrease dopamine, or is it not that simple? The drugs. Um, it it probably reduces the functioning of the of the dopamine system in areas of the prefrontal cortex. This these genes, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, all right, there's a genetic component. Are there environmental components as well? Yeah, and more often than not, it's probably going to be a combination of genes and environment, right? And which is now increasingly what we're recognizing, uh, these sort of epigenetics of mental health and psychiatric disorders is that people may inherit a bunch of genes that make them more at risk or vulnerable to the development of a disorder. And then you layer some environmental events on top of that. Which puts, which makes the d- disorder become manifest. So what I like to say is that genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So for example, uh, there's good evidence that if um, a child uh, has a, a specific gene that again is related to dopamine functioning and the mother was smoking throughout pregnancy, this elevates the risk of ADHD. So. The smoking is the environmental input, and the gene is is uh, that dopamine gene um, is present. There's also evidence that um, perinatal hypoxia, which is a fancy way of saying that around the time of delivery or birth, uh, there's uh, the infant is or the baby is exposed to low levels of oxygen, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, often this is like birth complications, a child potentially getting stuck in the birth canal, um, uh, umbilical cord around the neck, for example. So not enough oxygen going up into the brain. Uh, this can lead to a number of of issues, including things like cerebral palsy, but also potentially can lead to ADHD. Um, I do want to dispel some myths. So there's some um, individuals who think food additives, food coloring, red dye um, may cause ADHD or worsen the symptoms. In addition, sugar, high consumption of sugary foods. Uh, and there's no solid scientific evidence or compelling evidence to, to show that this is actually true. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying that the science just doesn't support that. Right. Okay. So when someone's got ADHD, is there a do we have a brain description of what's happening? Somewhat, yeah. So um, it's difficult to say what's happening at a, a very micro level because we don't have the techniques or the technology to really visualize that in the human brain. Um, But there is good evidence to support the fact that um, it's probably, there's probably pathology uh, of two key systems in the brain. Parts of the prefrontal cortex, which is the most anterior portion of the human brain, meaning that the very front part of the brain, we've talked about it a lot in the podcast and in many different episodes. So 
if you touch your forehead, that part of the brain right in behind your forehead, your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. And that part of the brain is involved in executive control. I say it's your CEO of your brain. It, it, it really does us um, guide behavior. It's involved in um, day-to-day memory and attention. So it, it very clearly, um, based on the fact that ADHD is marked by difficulties in regulating behavior and attention, the prefrontal cortex is a candidate region. And we do know there is less, seemingly less gray matter, uh, less cells in parts of the prefrontal cortex with people with ADHD. And the other system that seems to be dysregulated is the reward circuit. So um, if you want to refresh on that, I talked about the reward pathway in the episode on uh, cannabis and addiction. But the reward circuit actually is connected to the prefrontal cortex. So this is known as the dual pathway model of ADHD, that there seems to be this dig- dysregulation in both uh, the prefrontal cortex and um, the reward circuit. And to put it very simply, what it appears to be is that individuals with ADHD don't seem to get the same level of stimulation of the prefrontal cortex from lower brain circuits. So when most of us are kind of sitting in lecture, let's imagine, or we're sitting at work watching a talk or we're reading a book, you're getting a certain amount of inputs from lower brain circuits that uh, release things like noradrenaline and and dopamine, right? And they are serving to arouse the organism. And so these lower brain regions are are releasing dopamine and noradrenaline into parts of the prefrontal cortex. And that's uh, um, making these cells, they're firing and you're you're alert and you're paying attention. And what you hear from kids often with ADHD is they say they complain a lot that they're bored. I don't know, and which seems strange in in the face of it, they're constantly, it, well, it makes sense. If you think they're constantly seeking attention, see, they're changing stimuli, they're, they're moving their body because in an effort almost to overcome the low levels of arousal, right? So we're not getting that nice signal to the brain saying, pay attention, be alert. And then the symptoms of ADHD are manifest as, a, as an effort almost to, to maintain arousal. So... So you can treat it with stimulants. Yeah, so that's why um, ADHD, interestingly, here's a fun fact, is the most treated psychiatric disorder. What that means, or most successful treated psychiatric disorder, meaning among all the ones that are listed and all the ones that we know about, um, if if a child or an adult has ADHD and we, we use stimulants to treat it, it very effectively reduces the symptoms, right? Almost 80 to 90% um, uh, receive a good uh, symptom remission. So that is, so, okay, so just like to go back to what you were saying, their mind feels understimulated, and giving them a stimulant sort of satisfies them a little bit. Right. And that's interesting because in normals, like, we think of somebody like hopped up on coffee as being flighty and can't pay. Mm. A, or No, no, do or do we? Right. Well, that's the thing. Back to that normal distribution, right? Too little stimulation is not good, right? We need an, an, an optimum amount of stimulation. If we take too much, we also become, an, uh, in a, think about somebody who's very, like stimulants or drug category that um, act to, uh, they, they're called sympathomimetics, meaning they, they mimic the activity of the sympathetic nervous system, which pumps out things like adrenaline and dopamine and norepinephrine. So if you, if you take cocaine, right, yeah. that's a, cocaine is a stimulant, 
and you take a lot of cocaine, you, you're not paying attention to anything either. You've, you, the system is way saturated. Right. right. So you need this optimum amount of stimulation of, of those key neurotransmitter systems in parts of the prefrontal cortex. So stimulants, yes, that's that's the the main uh, arm of therapy for ADHD is you give things like methylphenidate, which is the brand name or Concerta, uh, and the generic is essentially amphetamine, right? So mm-hmm. um, they are they they all these drugs. What they do is they enhance the dopamine and noradrenaline firing uh, or signal in parts of the prefrontal cortex. That's how they work. Wow. Okay. So, and these these drugs are safe for kids. Well, they yeah. Uh, so that was the you know some of the concern. You're basically giving children um, a, a drug from a category that's equivalent to cocaine, right? And you know the in addition to that, you're also giving it to a child whose brain is continuing to develop. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a lot of concerns about what would be the long-term effects of these drugs on the system. And there's been a wealth of research in animal models, uh, human studies looking at um, what happens to the brain over time. But uh, what it seems to be is the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs, right? So some of the costs... Um, <coughs> In children, certainly, what you're going to have is uh, they lose their appetite. So what stimulants do, um, because they mimic the sympathetic nervous system, is the sympathetic nervous system, when it's active, pumps glucose through the blood. Um, and when we have glucose in our blood, the brain detects that as we have food. We're not we're not hungry. So um, when you take these drugs, it decreases your appetite. So children's growth can be slowed as a result. Hmm. So moms and dads are often trying to like make sure their kids are eating. This can be a real issue, but they do catch up. So that's that's reassuring. Um, and then again, sort of that effect on the long the long-term effect on the reward circuit. And the data are, are somewhat mixed, but what seems to be the benefit is that children and adolescents who are adequately uh, who are treated with stimulants seems to actually lower their risk of developing a substance use disorder later in life. Wow! So untreated um, ADHD increases the risk for developing addiction. Mm-hmm. So that alone in itself um, is 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 pretty compelling evidence. And of course, there there are sort of societal external costs of having all these drugs out in the in the world, right? Exactly. And now there's um, emerging evidence that some of these drugs are being misused, um, and in particular in, in settings like ac- like academia, uh, on campuses, uh, higher ed, so that people, and I, and, I, and I survey my students every year, I ask them anonymously, how many of you are taking off-label, meaning they haven't been prescribed, uh, stimulants to help with your studying? And about 20% of the students admit to doing this. So what that means is that we've got a student that has a prescription and they're selling pills for 20 bucks a pop uh, to students around exam time um, so that people are taking them in order to increase their attention and their focus. Because the reality is, if you or I, even without an ADHD um, diagnosis, if we took a stimulant, of course, uh, uh, the right dose, we would be able to pay attention and be alert for a lot longer. And these ha- this has ethical implications, right? So I always pose mm. to my students, imagine you're applying to med school and uh, you have to study for the MCAT and you know uh, somebody who is also studying for the MCAT, 
but taking off-label stimulants to help with their studying, and they get in and you don't. How how does that make you feel, right? So yeah, it, um, it produces trust in the whole system. Exactly. And then uh, f- initially when these drugs were prescribed, people there was evidence of people crushing the, the pills and snorting them to get a little bit of a high. And that's why most of the drugs now are in a non-crushable form so that people cannot right. um, misuse the drug um, to to achieve a, a very different outcome. But are these drugs, you know, they're stimulants. Are they, are they different from having a lot of caffeine, for example? Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, all the stimulants have different what are called pharmacokinetic profiles. And that's a very fancy way of saying that. There's a lot of fancy words today. There, I know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Neuroscience. There's fancy words. <laughs> what that means is that every drug um, based on its the biochemistry and then also the the, the formulation of the drug be and, and the method of delivery will interact with the body quite differently, right? So when you take a drug intravenously, it's, it's rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream and rapidly distributed to parts of the body, such as the brain, versus if you uh, take a drug orally, right? You consume it by mouth, gets ab- absorbed into the gastrointestinal tract, and then is goes into the liver, where a lot of it is broken down and metabolized before it gets to the target, which is the brain. So we have a much slower absorption, slower distribution. And what that means is that your blood levels of the drug are not peaking super high and then falling super quick, which would be more at risk for addiction, right? So the pharmacokinetics of these um, stimulants that are prescribed cause much uh, like low and steady blood steady, levels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that that doesn't correlate with the sensation of of an intoxication or a high. So pharmacokinetics matters. So you don't it doesn't crash as No, in the initial formulations, badly. yeah, they they would crash quite a bit because they they'd be um, maintained and then the the drug would very quickly be excreted and metabolized and excreted and then children would just report like a crash so now right. like cons- that's why concerta uh, is very good at kind of sustaining um, blood levels of, of right. the the drug up until bedtime so what do you recommend if someone uh, thinks that their child might have it uh, what I would recommend is go obviously uh, or not I would say go see your healthcare practitioner, right? So go see your your GP, your um, your physician, your family doctor, um, and request a referral to see to get a what's called a psychoeducational assessment, um, and they would refer you to a clinician that has again the credentials to do that kind of assessment, um, and you'll be um, doing the best thing for your child if if indeed um, there is some concern there. Right, and and if you think you might have ADHD, um, we probably should have done this at the beginning of the podcast, since if you have an incredible attention problem, you might not still be listening. But for those of you still listening, if you think you might have ADHD, also talk to your doctor. Yeah, talk to your doctor, and yeah, hopefully everybody's still alert. Hey, minding the brain, it's like a stimulant for your mind. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by the selective pressures in our ancestral environment, which caused the brains of our hominid ancestors to double in size. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. (laughs) 